This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Progressive Magazine, Living on Earth, Comedian Lee Camp, Brain Freak, The Young Turks, The Unfuck It Up Project, and The Tom Hartman Program. And I'd just like to point out ahead of time that all the problems you're about to hear about still seem to stem back to money and politics. Funny how that works. From Florida all the way north to Maine, cities and towns and regular people boarded up windows and and tried to get ready. Hurricane Sandy was on the way up, up from the Caribbean to the East Coast, spinning huge and mercilessly. We have experienced a lot of hurricanes in this country, but for sheer size, Sandy was without precedent. Sandy was the largest single storm system to ever form in the Atlantic Ocean. And it was aiming for the most densely populated part of the United States. It was aiming for our nation's largest city. And that city raced, like all the others, to get ready for this gigantic storm. New York City sent out evacuation orders for people living in flood zones. They built sandbag walls at office buildings. They shut down the subway system. They locked the door to Grand Central Terminal. But for all the desperate measures to protect great big New York from a storm that was even bigger than even the idea of Gotham. There was one place they needed to protect, maybe most desperately of all. This is Harlem. Uh, This is the end of the number three train line. It's one of the red ones on the map if you visit, and if if, if you do visit, you should use that line so you can go up and see Harlem. If you zoom out and look at that station on the map, you will see that it is very near the Harlem River dangerously near the Harlem River when a hurricane is galloping north straight for you, set to unleash rivers from their banks, right? Underneath that map are the tunnels, the subway tunnels that act essentially like veins for the city. You can see here this train emerging from the tunnel into an open yard. But if the Harlem River was going to turn the subway tunnels on the east side of Manhattan into its tributaries, If the Harlem River was going to surge down into those subway stations and into those subway tunnels, then the whole eastern side of the city was an open question as to what was going to happen then. And that route into the subways was exactly where Sandy was due to send the Harlem River. Unless somehow the city could figure out a way to stop it. Unless transit workers could figure out a way to make it stop. So they tried. Days before the storm, watching the forecast, anticipating the rising waters, carpenters started collecting lumber. They started hammering together this sort of ad hoc plywood dam across the open mouth of the tunnel that the Harlem River was set to surge right down. They put together a dam that was five feet high. But then something happened that made them realize that five feet high was not going to be tall enough. They needed to get that dam even taller than that. The great Robert Sullivan wrote about this for the New York Times uh, a couple of days ago. These city workers trying to stop the Harlem River from storming through that tunnel and drowning the eastern side of Manhattan? They looked at the latest forecasts from the National Weather Service. They looked specifically at what you call the SLOSH maps. SLOSH is an acronym. It stands for Sea, Lake, and Overland Surges from Hurricanes. Slosh. They looked at the slosh maps, they looked at the forecasting, and, and, and what they realized from looking at all that data, what they realized from looking at those slosh maps was that a five-foot-high dam wasn't going to be enough. 
So the order came down, quote, this is what we need to do, fellas. We need to get this wall to eight and a half feet high, and it's going to need to hold back the Harlem River. You need to build it at such a strength that it is going to endure. So they built it as best they could in the very limited time that they had, in the last hours before the storm hit. And the wall endured. It held back the Harlem River with three inches to spare. The forecast was accurate to within three inches of what they needed it to be. And as hard as Sandy hit the subway lines and the infrastructure in the biggest city in the United States, the devastation would have been worse times a number that is scary to calculate now if scientists had not accurately calculated the risks before the storm down to the last three inches. We as taxpayers paid for that scientific work to be done. It was done correctly. And because those hero transit workers knew to use that data and knew that they needed to build that wall not five feet tall, but eight and a half feet tall, a huge swath of the largest city in this country was saved. The science worked. When you have a great big hurricane coming your way, maybe science becomes easier to trust. I mean, if you've ever lived through a big weather event, a big snowstorm or maybe a wildfire or a drought or a flood, you know what it means to check the weather every day like your life depends on it, because sometimes it does. Even if you're just planning a picnic or maybe a wedding outside, you check the weather all the time, right? Your need for accurate scientific information is immediate and clear. But if you are living in a place where the science tells you something unsettling, not just about your wedding plans or your picnic next weekend, but your whole life and the viability of life in the place where you are planning to live for a long time. If science is telling you something unsettling about that, then our reliance on science can sometimes get mixed up with our counting on politics. The city of Norfolk, Virginia is home to the largest naval base on earth. That naval station is there in part because Norfolk, Virginia sits right beside the water. That said, because the Atlantic Ocean has been rising, Norfolk, Virginia now sometimes sits in the water. As we get more high tides and the high tides seem to get higher and we get more of these storms and they seem to come with a little more fury, um, we get more and more water in our city as the days go by. And so we're taking it very seriously. We're raising homes, we're raising roads, but we're also, you know, retreating very slowly from some of the shoreline so we don't spend money raising houses that when the next storm comes through here they'll be you know damaged again for the democratic mayor of norfolk virginia the situation is obvious the climate's changing seas are rising seas are going to rise two or three feet on the virginia coast in this century and so in a low-lying city right on the coast something's going to have to be done norfolk's going to have to adapt to protect life and protect property that simple reality for some people in Virginia is not so obvious. When word got out last year that Virginia state lawmakers were considering a study of rising sea levels and the effect of that on the state, the local Tea Party groups in Virginia said that whole prospect was based on fraudulent information. This talk of climate change and rising seas was to them another manifestation of United Nations mind control plots. Quoting a Virginia Tea Party leader, I fear that if we fail to reverse this, the sovereignty of America will soon disappear. In Virginia, the solution to this problem of conservatives objecting to even studying a rise in sea levels uh, was not to just let sea levels rise. Um, the way they dealt with it, actually, was to try to not upset the Tea Party people by not talking about it too loudly. 
What they did was they edited words that the Tea Party people were upset about out of what they were doing. Republicans in the Virginia legislature objected to the words sea level rise and climate change. They said those were left-wing terms. They agreed, they, they, they objected to those appearing in the bill that would have studied those things in the state. So instead, Virginia scientists will study the more politically neutral sounding phenomenon of recurrent flooding. They just took the buzzwords away so as not to get all the angry people in the tricorn hats and the poster board coming to their meetings. Down the coast from Virginia, the great state of North Carolina is also beginning to see the effects of the same sea level rise that they do not want to talk about in Virginia, even if they're pretty sure they have to do something about it. Unlike in Virginia, though, North Carolina, until very recently, was governed by Democrats. Under Democratic governance, North Carolina had a commission uh, that had commissioned an official plan for doing something about the effects of climate change in the state back in 2010. In 2010, the official Coastal Resources Commission of North Carolina considered the effects of climate change on the state. They predicted a frightening rise in sea levels for North Carolina of 39 inches, more than three feet. That was climate change in North Carolina, the issue of rising sea levels and what to do about it under Democrats until 2010. But in 2010, that year, Democrats lost control of the government. Republicans won control of the North Carolina legislature for the first time since Reconstruction that year. And the Republicans in North Carolina, once they were in charge, they decided that you can stop rising sea levels if you refuse to believe in them. The North Carolina Senate said that a 39-inch rise was just too much to contemplate. They decided, never mind the science, the state should get ready for less than a foot. Okay. In 2012, Republicans in North Carolina won the governorship as well as the legislature. They won full control of the state. And so now the state has abandoned plans for dealing with climate change altogether. The technical term for this is la 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 la. We are accustomed to talking on the show about conservatives pretending science doesn't exist. We're accustomed to telling stories like the lawmaker on the science committee in Congress who describes evolution as a lie coming straight from the, straight from the pit of hell, Paul Brown of Georgia. But this thing of state governments declaring themselves immune from science for planning purposes... This is a whole other kettle of fish. I mean, the consequences of getting it wrong are so big and so practical and so immediate. I mean, when science suggested that those carpenters should build a wall eight and a half feet high, they did build that wall eight and a half feet high, and by doing so, they saved a city. That was science, the same kind of science from some of the same scientists who are warning the states that do not want to believe them about the floods that are coming. This is a story of a storm foretold for the past 20 years now. Scientists have warned us that global climate change was going to create extreme storms with grave consequences. Well, we just saw one of those extreme storms and the consequences in the Philippines. 
The typhoon with winds of 190 miles per hour and the storm surge 15 feet high killed 10,000 Filipinos and left hundreds of thousands homeless. It was yet another storm of the century and they seem to be coming every year now. You gotta wonder, how many more of these can we witness before the U.S. and China and other big polluters finally decide to get off fossil fuels? Because it's going to happen again, probably next year, with more needless death and suffering. Millions of poor people in low-lying areas, not just in the Philippines, but in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Papua New Guinea, Bangladesh, India, and Sri Lanka, and that's just Asia. They're all going to get hit. And we're not immune either right here in the United States. I just read a ridiculous story about Florida where the developers and the business community in general appear to be in total denial, even though much of the state could be underwater in mere decades. But hey, they want to make their money while the sun shines, so they keep developing right along the shores. Their attitude? Take the money and run, and after us, the deluge. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. It's a new year, and that means that it's time to do all those things you've been telling yourself you do in the new year. And you know what they say about resolutions, hopes, and dreams. Everybody say it with me now. All dreams that are worth having need a companion website to go with them. And that's where Squarespace comes in. They're the perfect platform to quickly build a brand new, slick-looking website before your New Year's motivation runs out. Whether you're ready to reveal those songs you've been secretly recording to the world, sell those widgets you've been tinkering with in your basement, or just create a great-looking portfolio of your best work to impress the big wigs at your next interview, Squarespace has you covered. And if you want to go a more traditional route with your resolution, you know, a new diet, an exercise regimen, or you plan to read a book a week, that sort of stuff, well, make sure you blog your progress on your new Squarespace website because you know what they say about anything that anyone does in their lives. Everybody say it with me now. If you don't blog it, it didn't really happen. So try Squarespace for free for 14 days to see all the details yourself, and then when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT1, that's L-E-F-T, and the number 1, to get 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. And now we turn to Peter Dykstra publisher of the Daily Climate and Environmental Health News, for a new feature on Living on Earth that notes a few stories from beyond the headlines. Every day, Peter and his crew comb the Internet for stories of environmental change from around the planet, everything from the weird and wacky to little-noticed ones that we should watch out for as they emerge over time. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. So what do you have for us this week? We're going to go to two very different parts of the world and start in the tropics. EHN picked up a story this past week that might not seem like a whole lot right now, but we think it's going to be a big deal for the world in the years to come. It's from the capital city of Bangladesh, Dhaka, and the English-language paper there, the Dhaka Tribune. They reported that uh, saltwater intrusion is becoming what they call, what scientists call, an alarming problem along the coast of Bangladesh. Okay, so how does salt water get into fresh water? The farmers and cities in this very densely populated country of Bangladesh depend in large part on groundwater and aquifers, drilling wells to water farms and to provide drinking water. There's been so much pressure on the wells nearest the surface that water's drawn out of them and salt water is essentially sucked in. And when you have sea level rise, 
that makes that whole problem worse. Eventually, the scientists say, there'll be a huge problem along the coast of Bangladesh involving tens of millions of people and farms and cities with saltwater intrusion making some of their traditional drinking water sources completely off-limits, and that may be the good news. Uh, You're calling that good news? Uh, Relatively speaking, because the bad news is that Bangladesh's other primary source of water is melting glaciers from the Himalayas, and the glaciers are definitely melting, but they're melting a little bit too fast. If the glacier water goes away and the coastal aquifers are put off-limits and polluted by saltwater intrusion, Then you have a nation of 150 million very thirsty, very hungry, potentially very angry people. And that's why a lot of folks are looking at water issues and climate change issues as global security issues. Okay, now where else are you going to take us on the globe? We're going to go to a very different place up in the Arctic, up in the cold weather, where the Parliament of Greenland, by one vote, just decided to open up mining for uranium and for what are called rare earths, some of the strategic metals that are used in everything from uh, windmill blades to electronics to the phone and, and recording equipment we're speaking to each other on right now. The reason that that mining industry is opening up in Greenland, they've known for a long time that there's a lot of money and a lot of minerals beneath the surface of Greenland, but the surface of Greenland has also been beneath a lot of ice. The ice is leaving. The minerals are exposed. Uh, multinationals, particularly from China and Australia, are looking to come in. It will change Greenland. It will enrich some people there. It will change the lives of just about everyone there. And this is all happening because that land-based ice in Greenland is melting and contributing to sea level rise, which will also, uh, as the Arctic melts, the sea-based ice opens up, and shipping those minerals out will also become easier. And, of course, the land ice melting raises sea levels. Which brings us back to Bangladesh and a lot of other low-lying places that are going to be imperiled by sea level rise. Hey, Peter, anything else before you go? We're just looking at uh, sort of an ironic and sad twist. Uh, Just about everybody knows that uh, this is the one-year anniversary of Superstorm Sandy and all of the destruction that it caused in New Jersey and New York. But 24 years ago this month, The governor of New Jersey back in 1989, Thomas Kane, a Republican, issued a very stark warning in an executive order about climate change and said that the coast of uh, the New Jersey area, the Jersey Shore, needs to be ready for severe storms and hurricanes that are going to be worsened as climate change becomes a reality. This is 24 years ago from a governor, a Republican governor. He may be eligible for what I like to call the Nobel Prize in I Told You So. And the problem is very few people listened. And if they had listened, the damage from Sandy a year ago might have been a little bit less. I'm not trying to drive you away, nor am I thinking of something to say. Yeah, I'm just listening, just listening. Sat in school like a fool cause you're dreaming That monotone drone like a moan without meaning Suddenly singles you out And you don't know what the question's about So you're umming and knowing and stealing your nerve for a blag or a lie But you're too shy and too honest You want to be on it You're sweating and getting so hot-headed from it Now I don't know I wasn't listening Now I don't know This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Today I want to tell you a short story about the path our energy takes around the world. It's an exciting story of adventure, intrigue, and a wooden table. 
I'm not kidding. I am blatantly getting the bullet points of this story from a man named Damien Gills, although all the bad jokes are mine, and I don't want you saying otherwise. The story begins with our gas companies using hydraulic fracturing to get the natural gas out of the ground, right? On average, 400 tanker trucks powered by gasoline bring water and supplies to the fracking site. At each site, millions of gallons of water is mixed with thousands of gallons of chemicals and pumped into the ground. Right now, 72 trillion gallons of water and 360 billion gallons of chemicals are needed to run our current gas wells. And only 40% of that fracking fluid is then recovered, so the rest is left behind for future fun time. Like flammable tap water and earthquakes. But you know me, I love some fire water. That was a bad alcohol joke. That was one of those bad jokes I warned you about, it, but did you heed my warning? No, you did not! The gas is then shipped to a processing plant where it's compressed and liquefied, and again, a ton of energy is needed to do all this. The gas is next shipped to a tanker ship, which will spend another 7% of its cargo on powering the trip to the Asian market. On that trip, it will pass a separate tanker ship filled with logs, also from North America. Those logs are turned into tables at a factory that's powered by the gas we just sent there. Why are the logs sent to China for that? Because there's incredibly cheap labor over there and the phrase environmental regulations has not yet been invented. The closest they come is a term that loosely translates to don't step on the grass. In fact, over there you can dump chemicals in a dude's face and it's considered neighborly. Then the tables are put back on a tanker ship to go back to North America. Of course, that uses gas the entire way. The tables are then put on trucks powered by gasoline. The trucks take the tables to Walmart. You and I get in our single occupancy vehicles powered by gasoline to go to Walmart to get the new table. We don't use public transportation because we refuse to put the subsidies into making it good and efficient. Meanwhile, Walmart and Exxon and Shell benefit from billions of dollars of subsidies. So we'll dump money into Exxon, but we won't put it into, say, a trolley or a light rail or a group pogo stick or something. Anyway, once you get to Walmart, you save $5 on that table because it was built in China. And then we celebrate. We hold those $5 bills up and we dance around in a pagan ritual. We then throw that table into the garbage two years later because it's been designed to be cheaper and shorter-lived than a Hugh Hefner marriage, but it's okay because we'll buy a new table that only speaks Chinese and we'll save another five dollars. Pagan dance time again. There's a lot of things we can learn from this story. Every kind of lesson from inefficiency to planned obsolescence to why we should replace stationary tables with human slaves who could be hired to behave like tables. I mean, that, that last one needs a little bit of thought. But the most important question you'll get from this is why do we get our energy this way? And here's the answer you won't see on the news channels powered by big oil. Oil companies only want us to get energy from sources they have a monopoly over. Natural gas, coal, oil, tar sands, those are the energy sources they can control. Those are the energy sources that they have power over. That's why they'll put insane amounts of money into things like deep sea drilling, but they won't put a tip of a turd into a wind turbine. They're not going door to door handing out solar panels because then everyone can get their own energy. That would be like the Federal Reserve going, hey, you don't have to use this dollar system. You can use like pebbles or seashells, or 
pogs, whatever you want. Don't wait around for us. There are trillions of dollars that are going to fight to exhaust this world's environment. The passion to change the way the planet is powered has to come from us because it will not come from them. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind the scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. I am so glad that the world is finally getting together to stop climate change. When I first heard that our leaders were meeting to talk about solutions, I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Didn't you? Then I said, wait a minute, what exactly are they planning to do about this problem? So I looked into it. And I gotta tell you, not all the solutions they're working on are what I'd call solutions. In fact, the leading solution known as cap and trade or emissions trading is actually a huge problem. Now I know this is the last thing you wanna hear, but the future of our planet is at stake, so we gotta take the time to understand what's going on here. Okay, meet the guys at the heart of this so-called solution. They include the guys from Enron who designed energy trading and the Wall Street financiers like Goldman Sachs who gave us the subprime mortgage crisis. Their job is to develop brand new markets. They stake their claims and then when everyone and their grandmother wants in, they make off with huge amounts of money as the market becomes a giant bubble and bursts. Well, their latest bubble just burst and now they have a new idea for a market, trading carbon pollution. They're about to develop a new $3 trillion bubble. But when this one bursts, it won't just take down our stock portfolios, it could take down everything. So how does cap and trade work? Well, pretty much all serious scientists agree that we need to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere to 350 parts per million if we want to avoid climate disaster. In the U.S., that means reducing our emissions by 80%, maybe even more, by 2050. 80%? Now the problem is that most of our global economy runs on burning fossil fuels which releases carbon. The factories that make all our stuff, the ships and trucks that carry it around the world, our cars and buildings and appliances and just about everything. So how are we going to reduce carbon 80% and not go back to living like Little House on the Prairie? Well, these cap and trade guys are saying that a new carbon stock market is the best way to get it done. The first step would be getting governments around the world to agree on a yearly limit on carbon emissions. That's the cap. I think that part is great. So how do they want to ensure that carbon emissions stay under the cap? Well, governments would distribute a certain amount of permits to pollute. Every year there would be fewer and fewer permits as we follow the cap to our goal. Innovative companies will get on board building clean alternatives and getting more efficient. As permits get scarcer, they would also become more valuable. So naturally, companies who have extra will want to sell them to companies who need them. That's where the trading comes in. The logic is that as long as we stay under the cap, it doesn't matter who pollutes and who innovates. We'll meet our climate deadline, avoiding catastrophe, and oh yeah, these guys take their fee as they broker this multi-trillion dollar carbon racket, I mean market. 
save the planet, get rich, what's not to like? Some of my friends who really care about our future support cap and trade. A lot of environmental groups that I respect do too. They know it's not a perfect solution and they don't love the idea of turning our planet's future over to these guys, but they think it's an important first step and that it's better than nothing. I'm not so sure. And I'm not the only one. A growing movement of scientists, students, farmers, and forward-thinking business people are all saying, wait a minute. In fact, even the economists who invented the cap-and-trade system to deal with simpler problems like fertilizer pollution and sulfur dioxide, they say cap-and-trade will never work for climate change. Here's why I think they're right. When it comes to any kind of financial scam, like subprime mortgages or Bernie Madoff's pyramid scheme, the devil is always in the details. And there are a lot of devils in the details of the cap-and-trade proposals on the table. Devil number one is known as free permits, which is why some people call this system cap-and-giveaway. In this scheme, industrial polluters will get the vast majority of these valuable permits for free. Free! The more they've been polluting, the more they get. It's like we're thanking them for creating this problem in the first place. In Europe, they tried a cap-and-giveaway system. The price of permits bounced around like crazy. Energy costs jumped for consumers. And guess what? Carbon emissions actually went up. The only part that did work was that the polluters made billions of dollars in extra profits. MIT economists say the same thing would likely happen here in the U.S. Those billions come from our pockets. A real solution would put that money to work stopping climate change. Instead of just giving permits away to polluters, we could sell them and use the money to build a clean energy economy or give citizens a dividend to help pay for higher fuel prices while we transition to that clean energy economy or share it with those most harmed by climate change. Some people call this paying our ecological debt. Since we in the richest countries released the most carbon for centuries and lived a pretty comfy lifestyle in the process, don't we have a responsibility to help those most harmed? It's like we had a big party, didn't invite our neighbors, and then stuck them with the cleanup bill. It's just not cool. Did you know that in the next century, because of the changing climate, whole island nations could end up underwater? And the UN says 9 out of 10 African farmers could lose their ability to grow food. Now, wouldn't a real solution benefit these people instead of just the polluters? Devil number two is called offsetting. Offset permits are created when a company supposedly removes or reduces carbon. They then get a permit which can be sold to a polluter who wants permission to emit more carbon. In theory, one activity offsets the other. The danger with offsets is it's very hard to guarantee that real carbon is being removed to create the permit, yet these permits are worth real money. This creates a very dangerous incentive to create false offsets, to cheat. Now, in some cases, cheating isn't the end of the world. But in this case, it is. And already there's a lot of cheating going on. Like in Indonesia, Sinar Mass Corporation cut down indigenous forests, causing major ecological and cultural destruction. Then they took the wasteland they created and planted palm oil trees. Guess what they can get for it? Yep, offset permits. Carbon out? No. Carbon in? You bet. Companies can even earn offsets for not doing anything at all. Like operators of a polluting factory can claim they were planning to expand 200%, but reduce the plans to expand only 100%. For that meaningless claim, they get offset permits. Permits that they can sell to someone else to make more pollution. That is so stupid. The list of scams go on and on, and many of the worst ones happen in the so-called third world, where big business does whatever it wants to whomever it wants. And with lax standards and regulations on offsets, they can get permits for just about anything. 
Devils 1 and 2, cap and giveaway and offsetting, make the system unfair and ineffective. But the last devil, which I call distraction, makes it downright dangerous. You see, there are real solutions out there. But cap and trade with its loopholes and promises of riches have made many people forget all about them. We're not even close to a global agreement on a carbon cap to begin with. And duh, that is the whole point of cap and trade. But instead of hammering out a fair and strong deal, we're putting the cart before the horse and rushing off to trade schemes and offsets. With all the bogus offset projects, huge giveaways to polluters, and the failure to address the injustices of climate change, do you think the third world will get on board with the global cap? I doubt it. If a cap-and-trade proposal is stopping us from actually capping carbon, it's a dangerous distraction. We don't need to let these guys design the solution. We, us, our governments, we can make laws and do it ourselves. In my country, we already have a law, the Clean Air Act, that confirms that carbon is a pollutant which our environmental agency is allowed to cap. So what are we waiting for? Go, EPA, go! Cap that carbon! Instead, a U.S. cap-and-trade law proposed in 2009 guts the Clean Air Act, leaving it to the market to fix the problem. If a cap-and-trade proposal weakens our ability to make strong laws, it's a distraction. Concerned citizens around the world need to speak out and demand that we redesign our economies away from fossil fuels. But cap-and-trade makes citizens think everything will be okay if we just drive a little less, change our light bulbs, and let these guys do the rest. If cap-and-trade creates a false sense of progress, it's a dangerous distraction. These cap-and-trade proposals are mostly about protecting business as usual. Right now, the U.S. subsidizes fossil fuels at more than twice the rate of renewables. What? We shouldn't be subsidizing fossil fuels at all. These guys don't seem to realize that the simplest way to keep carbon out of the atmosphere is to leave it safely in the ground. U.S. Congressman Rick Boucher, a well-known friend of the coal industry, voted for cap-and-trade. He said it strengthens the case for utilities to continue to use coal. No law that encourages coal use can stop climate change, period. Solid caps, strong laws, citizen action, and carbon fees to pay off ecological debt and create a clean energy economy, that's how we can save our future. The next time someone tells you that cabin trade is the best we're going to get, don't believe them. Better yet, talk to them. They probably want a future safe from climate change, too. Maybe they've just forgotten that you can only compromise to a point before a solution isn't really a solution. Look, I know we'd love to sacrifice nothing, save the planet, and get rich doing it. But get real. This is the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. We can't solve it with the mindset, their mindset, that got us into this mess. We need something new. It won't be easy, but it's time we dream bigger. It's time to design a climate solution that will really work. In the journal Climactic Change, uh, there is a new report out, and it's by Robert Brule, uh, among others. He's the study's author, though. Uh, and he traces the people that are fighting against the idea of climate change. So these are the people who say that climate change does not exist and that it is not man-made. And he did something really interesting. He traced back who it is that says that 
and where the money comes from. That's really important. So number one, let me tell you uh, about the groups. There's 91 think tanks, advocacy groups, and industry associations that give out reports, propaganda, etc., about climate change that are against the consensus on the scientific conclusions on climate change. And there's over 140 different foundations. Now, these are things that appear to be, like, like think tanks are perfectly reputable. Well, a bunch of really smart people got together and they thought and they made a whole tank out of it. And so they, well, they must be honest and, and have an opinion that you should take into account. As you're about to find out here, they're totally funded by the groups that have a financial interest in making sure that you don't believe in climate change. So those 140 different foundations are shell groups. They're set up by, ironically, companies like Shell to make sure that you believe something that's going to help their bottom line and that isn't true. In fact, 78% of these groups are set up as charitable organization and on top of that to rub uh, you know, some salt in our wounds, uh, they often get considerable tax breaks because they're seen as charities. Charities to ExxonMobil and the Koch brothers, that's about it, but certainly not to the rest of us. So let me tell you about some of the foundations so that if you see these groups, you know what they're up to. A lot of them are uh, funded by Searle Freedom Trust, uh, John William Pope Foundation, the Heritable, Howard Charitable Foundation, and the Sarah Scafie Foundation. Now that's not all, but that's a sampling of the groups. So to give you a sense that when you see those groups, those people aren't the ones that are like, oh, just looking out for the needy, or making sure that we can all get along on the planet. No, no, they're front groups made to create it specifically so that the people who give them money can make even more money by injecting all this propaganda into the public debate. So how do they do it? Uh, they use that money to do lobbying, political contributions, and they do huge media campaigns. Two of the biggest groups that do it are the American Enterprise Institute. They get 16% of the money funneled in this direction. And the Heritage Foundation, and you'll hear about both of these groups often, they get 14% of the money funneled to these groups. And they're the ones that the Republicans quote all the time. Wow, there's an important report out from the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation says we should keep guzzling all the gas in the world. And eh, don't worry about all that carbon dioxide in the air. <laughs> I mean... What would scientists, 97% of the world's scientists know? And that's what we're up against. It's 97% of the world's scientists against a tremendous amount of money spent on propaganda. How much? Well, between 2003 and 2010, those are the years that they tracked, on average, these groups received $900 million a year. That is a combined over $7 billion in that eight-year time period they, they spent to deceive us. Now, to be fair, it was not all against climate change. There are, there's money that those groups get that they use on other forms of propaganda. And look, from time to time, you'll, will you find among those 140 different groups, some that are earnest libertarians and they have a libertarian ideology, or maybe even a few that have uh, legitimate conservative ideology. That's really hard to find because unfortunately the conservative movement in this country, which is a perfectly legitimate movement, has been co-opted by multinational corporations and geared in the direction of anything that is positive for corporations and not necessarily for conservative Americans. But from time to time you'll find a few honest groups that actually do a real report and those are worth checking out. But unfortunately the overwhelming majority are 
paid by those same groups who profit off of it, and that's the whole point of them. They're set out to deceive you, and so that Republicans could have a fig leaf when they come in, and oftentimes Democrats do, come in and say, wow, look, man, it's not my idea. The American Enterprise Institute spent a lot of money doing this report, and they inundate the media with it as well. So since 2003, by the way, funding has only increased. It's gone up 13% in that time period. So they see that this propaganda works, so they funnel more and more money into it. You know that in 2010 alone, that's the last year studied there, they spent $1.2 billion on this. That's what we're up against. So a lot of people outside of the country don't understand why do Americans have this knuckle-headed notion that climate change doesn't exist when every scientist is saying it. It's like saying, all the scientists agree that if you jump off a building, you will fall down because there's this thing called the theory of gravity, right? But the Americans, they don't believe it. Why? Because $1.2 billion have been put into our system to make sure that we don't believe it, that we're confused by it. So yes, scientists might agree to climate change almost as much as they believe in gravity, but not here in America. The citizens are totally confused. This is not an accident. This is not two equal sides of a debate having a legitimate argument about policy issues in the open free market of ideas. This is a rigged debate. A lot of money has been poured in to make sure that that oil keeps flowing. Because if they spend $1.2 billion, trust me that they're making a hell of a lot more than that. And when we've shown you story after story, all you have to do is go look at the bottom line of all those companies that work in the oil industry, which are literally the most profitable companies in the world. They're not spending that billion dollars for their health, and certainly not for the planet's health, for the exact opposite. They're spending it so they can make more money. Turns out doing propaganda and buying politicians through lobbyists and through campaign donations in America is a very profitable business. And I know, again, if you don't live here, it seems weird, but here in America, you're allowed to buy our politicians. It's legalized bribery. You just give them a campaign check. Say, here, you spend this and you can get reelected. Now do what I tell you. That's perfectly legal. I know it seems insane, right? But that's, and Americans have gotten so used to it. Our own reporters come in here and go, oh, well, who's done the best job of getting the most legal bribes? Well, look at that. Mitt Romney's done a terrific job. On the Republican side of the primaries, he's raised the most amount of money by promising to do whatever the hell his donors tell him to do. It's an amazing system. Now, you know me. I think that we can change it. Wolf-Pack.com is the site that we've set up. Wolfpack is the pack that we've set up to fight back against this so that the, we get the money out of politics and we... I mean, you can't do anything about what they spend in the media. That, that is what it is. But you can stop them from directly buying our politicians in the form of donations as they're doing it, in the form of lobbying. That's something that American people can get together and work on, no matter what ideology you're from. So now like, give me, let me give you a sense of how they've become even more devious now. In the old days, it was just uh, up through 2007, ExxonMobil would simply write a check to one of these groups and say, here, here, go, deny climate change, okay? And they'd hire a bunch of so-called scientists and authors to do these reports, etc. And they realized, well, that's a little inconvenient. That's so out in the open. So now they switch to a dark money tactic. The, the report explains, these two philanthropic organizations, referring to Donors Trust and Donors Capital Fund, which is the new groups that they have set up to hide the money, uh, these organizations form a black box that conceals the identity of contributors to various CCCM organizations. So these guys that are denying climate change, they don't give directly anymore. They give them to this dark box called Donors Trust and Donors Capital Fund, and they funnel the money. And then when 
American Enterprise Institute is asked about it, they're like, what do you mean? I got it from Donors Trust. Well, who's Donors Trust? I don't know. Could it be ExxonMobil? Maybe. But you can't find out. Man, they have corrupted the system so thoroughly. This is called dark money, by the way. And it's something else that Americans have gotten totally used to. Oh, well, obviously they got the dark money. <laughs> and we're just totally fine with it. Well, well, obviously they took that and they tricked them a whole American people and bought all their politicians. <laughs> Washington reporters don't even blink an eye. They find this perfectly normal. I know, like, if you're watching this, if you're in America or abroad, you find it insane. But when you report about this, the Washington reporters are like, what are you getting all worked up for? That's business as usual. Partly because they've been greased as well. Now, finally, the environmental sociologist Robert Brule, who's uh, worked on this, says money amplifies certain voices above others and, in effect, gives them a megaphone in the public square. I love that quote. That's exactly right. That nails it right there. So the Republicans will often say, what, what, what? It's freedom of speech. I mean, money is speech. I get to spend a lot. No, no. You got a freedom of speech, but you don't have $1.2 billion to back it up. So you're on a street corner. They buy the world's largest megaphone with that $1.2 billion and drown out not just your voice, but almost all of our voices. That's how this game is played. I think there is a way to change that game, and it's done through Wolfpack. If you can in some way help, whether it's volunteer, donate, become a member, whatever it is, I think we can get these guys. I know it's not an easy fight. But civil rights wasn't an easy fight. Uh, women's right to vote wasn't an easy fight. I'm pretty sure the Civil War was not an easy fight. But some, fight are, some fights are worth fighting, and this is certainly among them. Wolf-Pack.com, because this is on the issue of climate change. But this wholesale buying of our politicians is true in almost every issue. If you don't fix that core problem, well, you shouldn't be surprised. When Americans wake up and go, what? I don't know. I thought climate change, I thought that was a 50-50 proposition. I, I, I don't know. Since I can't decide if it's true or not, let's not do anything about it. That's what's happening in America. And literally killing our planet. They say the Nobel Prize is to know about the future. But the past gone by too fast. We've become another creature. Pouring that poison. This Best of Left activism segment comes to you, as always, in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project. Today's campaign, the D-Smog blog. Now, despite the, oh, look, there's snow, so much for global warming snickering coming from the purposely misleading right-wing media, listeners to this show know that with every new year comes new records for carbon dioxide levels, ever more normalized extreme weather, continuing species extinctions, rising acidity of the oceans, etc. Despite truly heroic actions from Keystone XL protesters, massive demonstrations from groups like 350.org, and even some moderately increased climate coverage on news outlets, 2014 promises to continue the climate change trend. Most of the incremental victories, some of which have national implications, are happening at the local level, which means knowing what is happening in your area has become extremely important. Restrictions on fracking and diversions of pipelines have been most successful when city, county, and state groups band together to impose regulations through their councils and legislators. 
legislators. But how is anyone supposed to know what's going on when the issue is not just complicated but lobbied against with big money and pushed by transnational corporations who obfuscate how projects are connected? The answer is do your reading. The DSmog blog is the best investigative outlet reporting on climate. If you aren't familiar with their work, go to dsmogblog.com and bookmark the site. Their writers include Pulitzer Prize winning veterans like Ross Gelbsband and young, hungry, activist-oriented journalists like Steve Horn willing to dig through thousands of pages of documents and financial records just to discover, for example, that while Keystone XL may be known as one overarching and potentially stoppable project, the southern half has already been built under a separate name, the Gulf Coast Pipeline Project and is open for business this month. In an era of disinformation, being an educated citizen is in and of itself a political act. As the DSmog blog founding philosophy states, democracy is utterly dependent on an electorate that is accurately informed. In promoting climate change denial and often denying their responsibility for doing so, industry has done more than just endanger the environment. It has undermined democracy. There is a vast difference between putting forth a point of view honestly held and intentionally sowing seeds of confusion. Free speech does not include the right to deceive. Deception is not a point of view, and the right to disagree does not include a right to intentionally subvert the public awareness. In 2014, let's do all we can as individuals to be informed and able to call out the deceptions that undermine our democracy and our environment. Help unfuck it up. And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking man's help unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? This is really an important issue. And it, it, it's a subset of the Fukushima uh, meltdown, you know, should we have nuclear problem, uh, power issue or problem or whatever. And that is the question, why do we have electric power plants? You know, nobody ever asked that question. It's like, well, obviously we have electric power plants because we need electricity. Well, why do you need electricity? Well, we need electricity so that, you know, we can have a higher quality of life. Louise's grandmother Louise, Louise remembers when her grandmother was finally talked into by the rest of the family doing away with the outhouse and building an indoor toilet in the farmhouse in rural Michigan. Her grandmother died a few years, or, a few years ago at the age of 97. It used to be before Franklin Roosevelt came along and created the Rural Electrification Administration that if you lived rurally, you had no electricity. I'm, I'm talking about the 20th century. In fact, the mid-20th century. And the reason why was because the power company said, eh, it's not profitable to run power all the way out to your house. We'll make all our money in the cities where we can run a short wire and we can charge all this money. So uh, Franklin Roosevelt came along and said, okay, here's a pile of money, you know, run the lines. That was the REA. But the point is that we have electricity to improve the standard of our living, of the quality of our lives. Now, what's the purpose of government? 
Well, Thomas Jefferson said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In other words, the quality of life. Right? Isn't that one of the roles? I mean, doesn't government have a responsibility for quality of life? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So there's this thing called natural monopolies. A natural monopoly, you know, a monopoly is when there's only one provider of something. Right? There's only one company that's doing this. They got a monopoly on it. If Microsoft could successfully put Apple out of business and, and everybody else, you know, who offers an operating system for a computer, then you know they would be a monopoly. There are, the European Union today argues that they're a monopoly anyway, but that's a whole other thing. But a natural monopoly is something like electricity. Electricity is a natural monopoly. If there were four competing power companies in your town, you would not have four wires coming into your house. And, you know, different days of the week, depending on who, who was offering what price that day, you would switch to different wires. Now you have one wire coming into your house. It's a natural monopoly. Natural monopolies are appropriately the job of government, either to provide or to very heavily regulate. Because it, when there's a natural monopoly, whoever controls that monopoly has us all by the neck, shall we say. They can, I mean, you've got one electric wire coming into your house. You're paying seven cents a kilowatt hour. They decide to charge you 40 cents a kilowatt hour. What are you going to do? Good luck. So if the purpose of providing electricity is to prov the general welfare, to promote happiness, then the purpose of producing electricity should be to serve the people, right? Which is why more than half of all the electricity generated in the United States is generated by publicly owned companies, by, by power generating stations that are owned by towns, by counties, by, by, by states, and in a couple of cases by the federal government. Which raises the question, why would you ever let a private for-profit company generate electricity? Well, you know, because the libertarians and the republicans have gotten around these laws in a lot of places. I was living in Portland when the city of Portland tried to buy the local electric company. And they and the local electric company was up for sale. It had been owned by Enron, and it was up for sale. And they put a price on it. I forget what the price was, but let's just say arbitrarily. It was $100 bucks, And the city said, fine, we'll offer $100 million. They said, no, we refuse to sell it to you. We will only sell it to a for-profit company. It was bizarre. I was there. I was on the radio every day talking about it. And the company won. city tried to sue them. It got sold to another company. They wouldn't sell it to the city, period. They didn't want it to go public. Bad precedent. Right? The industry didn't want it to go public. So, which brings us around to nuclear power. If the purpose of generating electricity is to serve the public good, then why would you generate electricity, regardless of how profitable it might be, in a way that could possibly threaten the public good? 
Why would you generate electricity in a way that could lead to a Chernobyl or a Fukushima? This is the question that the Germans were asking themselves 12 years ago. Back about five years ago, I, uh, I want, his last name was Hess. I forget his first name. I want to say Herman, but I know that that's the author. Anyhow, uh, the one of the two German legislators who introduced the legislation that produced all the, you know, the, the, the fact that about a third of all the German houses now have solar panels on their roofs. And that uh, dur during this last August, there were some days when over half of the electricity in Germany was generated from people's houses' roofs. That legislator and I co-keynoted a conference in Barcelona, Spain. Louise and I spent a week in Barcelona. Boy, that was, that's a cool city, by the way. In any case. And he, and he made the point in his speech that they knew that Germany was going to need a couple of megawatts more of electricity, and that meant they don't, you know, they have got coal, but there had been pretty much a moratorium on building more coal-fired power plants because they couldn't deal with the pollution. And it was getting very, very expensive to scrub that exhaust stack down to the point where it was clean enough to meet European standards. And they didn't have any oil, and they don't have much natural gas. And so what are they going to do? They, they've been building nuclear power plants since the 50s or the 60s. And so they, they were going to have to build a couple more nukes. And he said, why do that? You know, the people don't like it, and it represents a potential threat, and it produces a waste product that we don't even yet know how to deal with. We don't have a solution for nuclear waste. So why do this? Why not put solar panels on people's roofs? And so he introduced this legislation. And I think that's the strongest argument against nuclear power of all, is that if you look at the nuclear power stations in the United States, there's a few that are publicly owned, but the vast majority of them are privately owned. It's a for-profit business. And it's a for-profit business that only exists because it's subsidized by you and me, the Price-Anderson Act. The federal government insures nuclear power plants because Lloyd's of London refuses to. If you build a nuclear power plant in the United States, you cannot buy insurance that fully covers that plant for any kind of disaster. You can't buy it. No insurance company in the world will sell it to you. Now that in and of itself should tell you that this is not necessarily the smartest way to go. But just think of it in this in these terms and this is I mean we have we don't have these conversations in America anymore. These are the conversations that used to happen during the era of Nixon and Kennedy. The debate about the public good and whose responsibility it was and where it lay and how it should be executed. If producing power, if the goal of producing power is to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to promote the public welfare, the general welfare of the public, then do you do that with nuclear power? Or do you do that with coal? Or do you do that with solar and wind? I mean, shouldn't the answer be fairly obvious? If we started asking these, you know, the, these deeper and more fundamental questions, if we started using these larger frames, frankly, I think a lot of our policies would change, and for the better.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So just a couple of things to mention today. Uh, first of all, Stitcher Awards. Thanks to everyone who nominated the show. The show has been nominated for a Stitcher Award in the news and politics category, and voting is open right now. So you can go and vote for the show every single day between now and January 13th. So mark your calendar, set your reminders, do whatever you have to do every single day, uh, cast a vote for the show in the news and politics category. And then while you're there, if you feel like voting in the other categories, maybe you'll come across a show or two that you like, uh, by all means do that. Um, you know, if, if we win, I don't, I don't even know what'll happen. It, it'll be wild and crazy, but every single vote will be appreciated no matter the outcome. Secondly, today, I just want to mention that, uh, the, the clip today from Lee camp rang so familiar to me that, that I wanted to share this with you. Uh, he basically told a little bit of the, the life cycle of fracked natural gas, which turns out uh, gives it a higher carbon footprint than we might have imagined previously. I mean, plenty of environmentalists were actually excited about the idea of natural gas, not as you know the, the end-all solution to climate change, but as a what they refer to as a bridge to renewable energies. Uh, you know, at, at the point of con combustion, natural gas is less carbon intensive than things like coal. However, it turns out that we're not just drawing up natural gas from under us and burning it right here. Turns out we do lots of crazy things like go through a huge amount of expense and expensive energy to ship it to Asia before we blow it up. And you might imagine that, and as you might imagine, this increases the, the actual carbon intensity when you take the whole life cycle into consideration. So that, that's what Lee was talking about today. And it turns out that, uh, or it just so happens, that the uh, the executive director of the climate change organization that I used to work for, this guy Mike Tidwell, he works for the, Cli uh, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, he, he was just on a speaking tour recently. I went to one of his speeches, and he gives this speech where he tells the whole life cycle of natural gas and how it's insane to do what we're doing and claim that you know it, it's any kind of aid uh, to the climate or the environment in general. And so I actually have a recording of this speech, and I want to play this one little segment that sums things up real nicely. When you add it all up, Dominion's co-point liquefaction facility for frack gas would trigger more global warming pollution than any other process or facility in the entire state of Maryland. More than all of our seven existing coal-fired power plants combined. Now does it make us environmental radicals to say no to this? Fracking, earthquakes, flammable tap water, piping, compressing, liquefying, tankering to Asia, revaporizing, more piping, then finally lighting our Appalachian gas on fire in Asia. What could possibly be more radical than this? So that pretty much sums up, you know, my thoughts on natural gas and fracking. Turns out, you know, even if it wasn't uh, environmentally dangerous to the local area, you know, once you spread it around a little bit and, and consider the carbon output for the whole thing, it's not a real great solution that we should be working towards. So uh, I, I bring all of this up, uh, at least in part, to reintroduce you to the concept of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. As I said, it's a group I used to work for and have been involved with you know, on some level or another uh, since then. And well, when I say involved, usually I mean I, I raise a little bit of money for them. And we are back to that time again. It's January, which means that 
in you know about 23 days from now, I am going to be jumping into the cold, cold, cold Potomac River as a way to raise money for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. You know, I, I, I don't do this sort of thing a lot. A couple times a year, I raise a little bit of money, um, and and th- this is the one that I frankly dread uh, more than the others. I don't enjoy being cold at all, and the river is, you know, I don't know what temperature it's going to be. Um, it's not going to be warm. It's uh, it's snowing outside my window as I speak, and so I've set a goal of fifteen hundred dollars to raise to get me to to jump in the in the water, and I, I will be jumping in the water. I hope that you will, um, you know, donate towards that cause. But on top of that, if I reach that goal, that $1,500 goal, I will not only jump in the water, but I will ride my bicycle the 15 miles from my home to the, the, the national Harbor down in, in DC where this actually happens. And I did this last year. I reached the goal. I rode my bike and it turns out I was riding not quite through a snowstorm, but it had snowed the, the night before. So I was riding through snow to get to a snow-covered beach so that I could jump into the water. So I, I hope that you will take the time and uh, donate, you know, whatever you can. There's a couple ways to do it. It, it. It's not up right now, but maybe by the time you hear this, there will be a link posted at bestofleft.com to my fundraising page or you can go to keepwintercold.org, and that'll take you to the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, uh, key, uh, you know, Polar Bear Plunge fundraising website, and then you just search for my name. Just type in J. As of this moment, I'm the only J jumping in the water, and donate to my uh, to my page there. Every little bit helps, so any amount you can give will be greatly appreciated. Uh, I've already started the fundraise, and I, I chipped in 100 bucks of my own, so only $1,400 to go. Uh, please help me get there. And, and then the very last thing I want to mention is uh, that clip I played of Mike. Like I said, I had this recording of, of the speech, and I want to mention that the reason I have that recording is uh, because well, it's, a, it's sort of a long story. I coined a term today. Healthcare hostage. It's uh, you're a healthcare hostage if you're one of those people who hates their job but can't leave because of the benefits. And you have your healthcare there. And if you quit, you couldn't afford the healthcare uh, without the job, and it's a mess. And so you end up stuck in a job that you hate. Well, that perfectly describes my girlfriend. Uh, so Amanda's uh, idea to extricate herself from her uh, <laughs> healthcare hostage situation is to start her own business. And the business that she's working on right now is a sort of a video production promotion business. And one of her first videos that she's doing is for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. So we recorded Mike's speech. And the idea is that she's going to, you know, shorten it down to like just a just a nice little bite size video that Seekins can use to promote what they're doing all over the place. So the idea is that if you have a business or a nonprofit organization of any size and you want to have like a nice uh, tight packaged promotional video produced with, you know, if you have pictures or videos of events you've done or news clippings or anything like that, anything pre-existing, then Amanda can take that and turn it into a nice promotional video. 
And because she really wants to focus on mostly nonprofit organizations doing good in the world, uh, the hook is that she's trying to keep the price to under $1,000. And if you have looked at the price of any kind of a promotional video of any kind produced by anyone, you know what an amazing bargain that is. So if you think there's even a chance that you'd be interested in something like that, get in touch with me. I can get you all the rest of the details. Uh, Email me at j at bestofleft.com. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from Instagram, inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing See past our own sad stories and wonder